Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny, and can I just say at the outset, thanks for all the very positive feedback from our uh, Stan Grant podcast last week, uh, where I did a uh, Meet the Author live event in Canberra, uh, and we uh, put that out as a Democracy Sausage special, and uh, I've had lots of messages from people saying how much they appreciated that conversation, uh, very moved by by what Stan had to say. And, you know, obviously, as I've said a number of times before, as we all know, this is a uh, very important national moment and uh, a delicate one too with some, with some downsides. And I think Stan Grant really effectively conveyed the, the personal costs, the personal um, vulnerabilities that, that many people have in putting forward the, the case that they are doing with the, the voice to parliament. Um, and can I just say uh, thank you to those people who've expressed that goodwill. It means, it means a lot to me and I'm sure it means a lot to him. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, in Australia at least, then it's either winter today or pretty much winter tomorrow. We're right on the cusp of winter anyway. It's already you know, very, very cold here in Canberra, I might say. It feels like it's been winter for about the last three weeks or so. So we thought it was a good time to talk about COVID, especially because governments and media seem to be not talking about it as much as perhaps they ought to be. This is the biggest single health threat that uh, has faced humans uh, of any that any of us are going to see in our lives, probably, uh, in statistical terms, and yet the news cycle can't seem to keep it in its mind, even though it is not over yet. In the ACT, there have been, by the official statistics, 240,000 cases. Now, that's more than half of the, the population of the ACT, and, and those figures everyone accepts are a, a fairly significant underestimation, underreporting of, of the actual number of infections. So we're going to do a uh, slightly different thing from what we normally do on the podcast. We're going to be talking to one expert guest and then having another one join us for the second half, which is really about uh, her availability, and I'll come to that when it happens. But uh, in the first half, I'm very happy to be uh, introducing Professor Brendan Crabb, who is a microbiologist and director of the Burnett Institute based in Melbourne. He's also a professor at Melbourne and Monash Universities. Professor Crabb, welcome to The Sausage. You might be, I don't know if you are, but you might be our first microbiologist. And I know microbiologists might have some concerns about what's in sausages, but hopefully this one's safe. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Mark. And you're quite right. Uh, everyone, including me, definitely wants to hear uh, from Stan and no one wants to hear about COVID. Um, so I totally understand that. But it's still a completely fascinating topic and, and absolutely Pleasure to be here. As for sausages, yes, they uh, they do need to be well cooked, much more so than other meat, uh, for reasons you can appreciate. <laughs> so, microbiologists uh, love talking about sausages. They do, and in fact, uh, obviously, the the Australian culture of uh, you know snags on the barbie and 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 basically burning them was probably <laughs> probably a safer thing to do than go the other way. At least we're ahead of the curve. Yeah, uh, that's that right. Yeah. That's what you call. That's probably the definition of common sense. Um, although perhaps not eating them at all might uh, be another option, it's certainly mine. Um, now, you're also chair of the peak body of global health organisations in Australia called the Global Health Alliance. Just explain what that is. 
Well, there's there's a lot of groups in Australia from universities, research institutes like mine, WHO collaborating centres, we have 50 or so of them in, in the country and in the region, who all work in the region or, or within Australia or more globally for you know issues of improving health of the most disadvantaged, vulnerable, poor, poorest people around, and and yet they're not coordinated. So we have a peak body that uh, that you know, can represent everybody, especially to government, putting forward issues like you know how come a country like Papua New Guinea is only three to five percent vaccinated when Australians are. A ninety percent vaccinated. What can that is we do a about staggering that? figure. Three yeah, percent, right. did you say? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, you know, it's abysmal, and and it's a sort of a microcosm of of inequity that really does drive global health. I mean, mm. we've with COVID being a disease of everyone, you know, no matter how rich um, or yeah. poor, it's it's shone a light on the significance of. Of infectious diseases, especially, but uh, but health more generally. You know, we've we've sort of thought we've had health largely solved, um, but of course, in the in the developing world and in mid mid income countries as well, they've been majorly important. You know, the pandemics of the past, tuberculosis is probably the most important infectious disease next to COVID in the world, HIV, malaria, hepatitis viruses. You know, maternal mortality, for example, with PNG is as an example, is 50 times what it is here in Australia. You know, it's a dangerous thing to do to have a baby in Papua New Guinea. So these inequities um, with people, what I mean by that is people having health as their number one priority in life um, is a big factor for more than half the world. And and COVID has, has briefly brought that to all of our attention. Um, it can be really hard to have... The powers that be in the in G twenty countries, in particular, um, focused on on the inequities in the world and doing what they can. But you know, we try and do that, and not just from a humanitarian point of view, but you know, the success of all of us, our wealth, our health, our security is dependent on the development of those of those countries. And if you don't tackle these deep inequities in health, especially, you've got uh, no hope of that. So there's self-interest in it, and they're the sort of messages that uh, that we push to governments. Yeah, it's interesting as you as you put that there with our health and our wealth. Uh, interesting that those uh, words rhyme so well uh, and are so interlinked in a sense. Uh, in terms of th- that three uh, percent uh, immunisation rate in PNG being a, a good example, a, a low wealth country with a very low uh, level of immunisation and and many many other challenges, health and and economic challenges combined, it reminds me that, and we forget about these things a bit because this pandemic has been such a weird experience for us, and we've we've thought about it in terms of the the changes to our own lives and. Um, it's had some strange temporal effects on people. I think you know people have struggled to remember the order of things, or, or the long expanses where where things weren't known. The period before any uh, vaccine was even available was even yeah. developed. Um, that's easily sort of forgotten. And there was a debate in our politics, which was about whether whether you needed to sort of look after the health first and then the economy or, uh, or or you needed to as the government was saying at the time was sort of certainly in the earlier stages the rhetoric was a lot around protecting the economy ensuring the economy got through and and people others were pushing back i think the opposition at the time was pushing back saying well there is no economy without public health um it, it is interesting looking at the interplay of those two things isn't it yeah, very interesting indeed, and and you know we have. I'm sure if you if you vox popped most Australians, they would say you've got to make there's a balance between health and wealth. You know that that there's a trade off to be had. They're interested in both, and there's a trade off. That's actually wrong. It's a it's a wrong uh, perception. Health equals wealth. Yeah, and you know it doesn't necessarily equal wealth of the richest billionaires in the world and and I think we mistake economy sometimes for the wealth of of a very small group of people who who have a lot of um, power but true economy how well we're functioning to to deliver all of the the the, 
the services and needs and and you know some extra dollars in our pocket the true economy is served by the population being healthy and you know that's what the pandemic showed countries and regions that had less covid like australia even though we had rather extreme measures to get there did better economically than countries that didn't do didn't control the, the, the pandemic. So, you know, health equals wealth. We see that dramatically in the developing world. You know, I work on malaria, Mark. Uh, that's my special personal expertise. And, you know, malaria is a disease of the tropics and subtropics for obvious reasons. That's where all the mosquitoes are. And the closer you are to the equator, the, the, the worse malaria is because there's more mosquitoes. You can overlay a wealth map of the world almost exactly with the degree of malaria endemicity. The richer you are, the further away from the equator you are. The poorer you are, the closer you are to the equator. And that's because malaria has affected the health of the world throughout 200,000 year history of, of our species in such a dramatic way, malaria and other tropical diseases. So, you know, there's, there's a reason why countries stay poor and that's because they have intractable infectious disease issues. Once you have an issue like malaria, you're poor, it's then harder to get rid of HIV or tuberculosis or other things, and of course COVID that, that comes along. So they're absolutely interlinked. They're interlinked in our wealthy community, just as, as they are so dramatically interlinked in you know, the developing world and emerging economies. Just staying with malaria for a moment, given, as you said, it's your, your specialty, um, what what where is the where are we with malaria? Have there been advances, or I think I read somewhere recently that some of the treatments that we've had in the past have stopped working. The the last decade or two has seen a phenomenal improvement in malaria in the world, and then in the last three or four years, actually before COVID and then exacerbated by COVID, has seen a, a stalling in the progress. So it it's still. You know, at least the equivalent of the most important infectious disease in the world. Around half a billion people every year get really sick from malaria. Uh, half a million or so die, and they're mostly children under the age of five. So, you know, really, really dramatic impact on health and on economies of the world. But there's a, there's been a dramatic improvement, and then, as we see with COVID, you know, COVID evolves. Uh, literally evolves. That means its genome changes. Well, the same happens with the malaria parasite. Right. It evolves to become resistant to the drugs that are out there. And the mosquito, perhaps even more importantly, evolves to become resistant to the insecticides that have been so successfully used in these bed nets. Perhaps the most powerful tool for malaria control are bed nets that go over uh, kids when they sleep, especially at dusk when they're just going to bed incredibly powerful but it's not the bed net that makes the difference it's the insecticide that's impregnated into the bed net and and the mosquitoes become resistant to that and so we've seen for biological reasons resistance malaria resurge and then we've seen the covid lesson which is when there's a disruption an economic disruption a pandemic a war what you end up having is a breakdown of fragile health, you know, what is already fragile health systems in most places and therefore worse malaria because you don't have your test and treat program or your bed net program, worse HIV because, you know, the people aren't getting the, the therapy that they were once getting, worse tuberculosis and so on, and and worse neonatal and, and maternal mortality. All of those things are happening as a result of COVID breakdown of health systems throughout the world. So, yeah, mal malaria is unfortunately turning a corner for the worse after a long period of tremendous success. And, uh, and we've got to turn that around. And we, we need our government to, to play its bit in that. Um, and that we get a good reception, um, but it's going to need a step change in improvement about what we contribute and what other wealthy nations contribute over the next decade or so to, to make a difference. On PNG, you mentioned about the 3% immunisation rate. 
early on when we did have uh, vaccines and you know we saw various problems with that um, uh, undersupply then oversupply in some areas and, and and that kind of thing there was a lot of there were there were uh, doses being sent to PNG and again there were some problems with getting them out to where they were needed and so forth has the ball been dropped on that from Australia and other developed economies in supplying vaccines to PNG or what what, what is the reason for the low vaccination rate there the the story of why PNG PNG is low vaccinated is a good way to tell the story of, of both the successes and and the big failures from my perspective of the pandemic. Yes, in most of the developing world, it it was a lot slower to get vaccines to poorer countries than richer countries. We really did see vaccine hoarding, and so rich countries got vaccinated, and then as a secondary effort vaccines were provided to the developing world. Now, that's obviously a big problem. It's one of the reasons why we have a lot more COVID around, one of the reasons we have variants, because it allowed the virus to uh, grow in a much less controlled way in countries that were lowly vaccinated. But eventually, these mechanisms, um, governments got together in in, in different groups, especially the um, Alliance for Vaccines and Immunisation, Gavi, as it's called, and so on, got together and they provided vaccines for the developing world. So, you know, if I was to give it a, a score out of five for sort of three different areas, I would give the technology development in in COVID sort of a four and a half to five out of five. You know, the, the miracle of producing a vaccine in a year, I, I can't tell you how unbelievable that is. I would have said 10 years at a minimum. Yep. It happened in one year. Yeah, I agree. It's, and, I mean, not, it's your area of expertise rather than mine, but I remember thinking at the time, this is this is an extraordinary thing that has happened that we've witnessed happened in real time um, and perhaps, perhaps underappreciated by, by, by yeah. many people. And there's a lot in that. It was one of those things that was 30 years in the making. You know, the, the people who were funded to... Um, to develop the platforms for the the vaccines, you know, public funds. Yes, public the funds. National yes. Yep. The National Institutes of Health in the US and, and equivalent places like our own in Australia and all sorts around the world were developing the platforms that then became, you know, the viral vector that AstraZeneca used or the mRNA um, uh, tool that, that Moderna and Pfizer used so effectively. They were 30 years in the making uh, and, of course, there's a big lesson in that. But look, that was a four and a half, five out of five effort. Then the getting vaccines to countries was sort of a two and a half out of five effort. It wasn't terrible. You know, there's some big lessons there. It was a it was a it was an own goal. It was not just unethical and immoral to to vaccinate rich people first, but but it was an own goal to do it because variants took hold as a result. But there was a third bit that was completely neglected. And that's the social science of asking communities whether they want an intervention or not and in what form they want it. Um, and and we get almost zero out of five for that effort. You know, the delivery of public health interventions is often very top-down and it needs to be bottom-up. So, you know, the science of asking communities, what is it? We know you have a particular problem with whatever it is. What would work for you? Uh, is it is it better information? You know, in the case of Papua New Guinea, it's vaccine hesitancy that's driving that three percent figure. Right. Now, there's enough vaccine to vaccinate the whole country. They don't want it, and that's a scientific challenge, not just a challenge of public policy, but it's a scientific challenge that we largely, as a world, um, ignore. So, one of the big lessons of the pandemic is this tool development thing has to be circular. You need to be asking your customer right from the beginning what it is they want and in what form and at what cost, uh, and so so that manufacturing and distribution and availability can be in line with what a particular community will want and will use. And we've got microcosms of that in Australia. You know, in, in Australia, if English is your second language or if you're uh, relatively new to Australia, you have a much higher chance of serious illness and death than if you've been here for some generations. And, you know, so it's the same sort of issue. Those communities, it's not that the tools aren't available to those communities, the tools are available to those communities, but they're not using them at the same rate. And 
And that's the fault of policymakers and of, of our society more generally who don't value asking Hmm. Um, those people what will work for them and then trying to tailor the intervention for them. Incidentally, tying it to Stan Grant, the issue, it's, it's, it's the basis of the voice. You know, it's an evidence-based approach to, um, to, to ask communities and to really listen and then to try to tailor the response to what those communities have said. Yeah, for maximum efficacy, which is uh, surely what yeah. everyone wants in terms of programs addressing these intractable social, economic, and 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 health challenges uh, that uh, that uh, Indigenous or First Australians uh, around the country experience as a as a cohort. All right, look, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we will also bring in Professor Chris Wallace from the University of Canberra. So stay with us for that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, you're, of course, on Democracy Sausage, which comes from the ANU each week. And I've been talking with Professor Brendan Crabb, who's the director of the Burnett Institute based in Melbourne and, of course, connected with both Melbourne and Monash universities. It's my pleasure also now to uh, invite in Professor Chris Wallace from the University of Canberra. She's been on the podcast many times before, a very uh, adroit analyst of, uh, of politics and policy and a range of other things, author of countless books. Welcome back, Chris. Hello, Mark. Good to have you along. Now, we've been talking, obviously, about the public health challenges around COVID and some of the strengths and weaknesses, I suppose, of where we've got to. A couple of statistics worth mentioning as we kick off the second half, and I'm taking this from from your own article, uh, Brendan, uh, in the conversation recently. I think uh, we've got 681 million infections across the world and 6.8 million deaths. Those are, those are pretty staggering statistics. Uh, they're obviously not as bad in Australia um, as a proportion even for, for reasons that we've just been discussing. But we're dealing with a very serious situation and yet there seems to be a mismatch now between the level of coverage, the level of anxiety really, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense, but the, you know, the appreciation of just how serious this threat is. Chris, you've written and spoken about this a number of times as well. What's your explanation for how it is that, that the COVID threat hasn't gone away, but the sense of that threat seems to have kind of suddenly drifted off into the background? Mark, I think we're in a situation of real asymmetry here where a small group of people who managed to dominate the media coverage of the pandemic, namely the anti-vaxxer protesters, the, the cookers as we call them uh, often in Canberra, essentially hijacked the brains of the politicians who are responsible state and federally for public health in Australia. And I can entirely understand the problem. Social media has massively inflamed it as an issue. If you're a politician, uh, and you're subjected to political attack, in some cases actual threat of violence to your person, it's it's natural that you would become extremely alarmed at, at uh, a point of view coming from a specific direction. And I think there's a great fatigue amongst politicians and policymakers about being subject to that kind of attack. I think as a result, there's been a very uh, disappointing, indeed disturbing abandonment of public health fundamentals in this area as something that government, state and federally should aspire to be high achievers in. 
and a- across a range of current COVID-19 policy uh, from the availability of antivirals through through the very laissez-faire action on vaccinations, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly in, health, in nursing homes at the moment, uh, to the abandonment of schools as sites of mass infection, to the lack of an overall attempt to go, okay, this is a respiratory disease, what are we going to be, do about the ventilation issues? But most of all, Mark, most disturbingly, the abandonment of good real-time metrics in what's going on on the ground with COVID uh, against the backdrop of a health system that's already overstretched and underfunded and in some areas reeling under the extra impact of current COVID infection levels, uh, combined with the only reliable metric we've got left, which is deaths, uh, a death rate that's phenomenally high. I think COVID's still the current uh, number three cause of death in Australia. And this is all before we get to the impacts of long COVID. I think you've got to say current public health policy is a steaming wreck. Uh, Okay, politicians have had their getting over the cooker trauma moment, but Governments have to regroup now, really look at how poorly they're handling a very serious situation still, and fix it. Not least, Mark, because this is COVID-19. This is not the last pandemic. This is not the last novel virus that's going to hit our shores. And if we can't get it right now, how are we going to deal with future pandemic infections with novel viruses. Hmm, good point. Um, just let me take you back to that word you used, fatigue, and, and to your argument about uh, the influence of anti-vaxxers or cookers and, and and some of the commentary around the discourse around that, which has been pretty feral and extreme at times. I wonder if you're not overstating that element as a, as a force rather than just the sort of broader sense that you can what we've learned about covid or at least this extended emergency is that people only stay at high alert levels even in the face of a constant threat for a certain time before they start finding ways psychologically and and sort of literally in their lives um to to background it to put it elsewhere and 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 that our politicians have in a sense reflected a a public sentiment to um to move on, as it were, even though the virus still exists. That can be a powerful psychology, but of course, governments shape psychology. Um, Brendan earlier made a very good reference to the important principle of co-design, listening to communities and engaging with them to, to find out what will work with them. But good government and good policy also shapes that to an extent. And I draw your attention to the absolutely uncontroversial long-running program of vaccinations we've had for access to uh, schools, for example. You know, you can't send your kid to a public school without their mumps and whooping cough. Mm. Uh, And measles vaccination historically, utterly unremarkable, unpoliticised, tremendously effective public health. And you're right, it's not just the cooker influence, it's the influence of uh, conservative media in Australia that, that ran the same line hard. It's the fact that key public health posts have been occupied by some people who have, uh, in terms of the broad medical profession, fairly fringe views. Uh, I think when the current chief medical officer declared his desire to end COVID exceptionalism, when you set that against the view of many experts, including Professor Brendan Crabb, that this is indeed an exceptional infection and an exceptional situation, uh, I think it's it's. It's very unhelpful. And to that extent, I actually give uh, the current Albanese government a slight leave pass in that when its own chief medical officer is saying, no worries, let it rip, then, you know, it's, it's a problematic situation for politicians who are supposed to take such expert advice uh, carefully into account. When it appears to be the wrong advice as measured in deaths on the ground, well, I think that's a case for government having a profound review uh, of those current policy settings and changing them in an, in a direction that demonstrates less unnecessary death. Brendan, I, I, I wonder whether you're as surprised as me about the absence of any really kind of energetic and comprehensive public relations program around this right from the beginning. Really, we, you know, we saw the. Um, we saw some really bizarre kind of manifestations of of dysfunction really in in our politics um, and our society 
at various points during this COVID crisis, you know, uh, resistance to masks, resistance to to um, to other hygiene measures, uh, resistance to uh, doing something about uh, ventilation, which Chris mentioned and which still is the case, and. Right throughout that period, we you know we had one government, and then we had a, eventually a change just over a year ago. Uh, a number of us would have expected that the new government would have done something about this. We've seen very successful uh, public advertising campaigns before around skin cancer, around HIV AIDS. You know, there have been some controversies around some of these things, but they've been highly effective at um, at, at reaching people. We were talking before about public resistance in PNG, for instance, being a big barrier. Well, obviously, levels of public resistance about health measures in Australia have been a significant factor as well, as Chris has just been saying. I guess this is a question for both of you. Are, are you surprised that we haven't seen um, a, a sort of a stronger public relations campaign around things like the, um, the, the, the duty that you as a citizen owe to your community to and, and the the simple sort of basic courtesy and politeness of wearing a mask on public transport and these sorts of things, even through uh, the um, the most intense phases of this pandemic. Well, I can have a crack at that first. Um, look, it, it is a paradoxical time, to say the least, quite dystopian from my perspective. Um, and I guess to your question, the thing I find the most um, believable about the current moment is the lack of an honest conversation about it um, that that is just a straight conversation as well as a you know public health campaign along the lines of uh, of, of what you've suggested because the things we need to do about COVID are not onerous um, you know and 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 you know perhaps people think it's it's about lockdown or nothing and of course that's just not true it's vaccination it's clean air and it's testing and doing something about the result of that test and um and of course it's a mask if you can't breathe clean air and that's mm. pretty much it and they're the things that that could be promoted i think there's a range of of things feeding into it chris's commentary is is pretty right i think and and is driven by you know this sort of libertarian world that we, we that we we live in it's it's exacerbated by the trauma that the 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 community feels and so is is willing to um buy into the fallacy that it's no longer exceptional that it's just the flu that we can treat it like anything else there is another factor though uh an underlying one where we have a strategy that some countries adopted in 2020 um and failed and and others like ours have adopted post-vaccination. And that's to say infection is our friend. You know, when Omicron came along, it was referred to by the Chief Medical Officer of Australia as our Christmas present. And, and the notion is that uh, we've got gotten ourselves really well vaccinated, a miraculous thing in Australia. So we had virtually no COVID. And, of course, most of Australia, if you don't count, border controls, which are very big deals. Most of Australia didn't have uh, much lockdown during the, so they had no, no virus and no um, restrictions on it, on, you know, day-to-day -day movement. And they got vaccinated in that time. And then, and then once Omicron came along, it was, well, maybe this is our natural immunological boost. We've got this highly transmissible, mild in inverted commas virus. And so it can run through the community um, Prime Minister Morrison at the time, I think, said we'll push through that 2022 wave and and we'll be really um, immune. So this was called hybrid immunity. The original version of it was called herd immunity that the UK went for and, and other countries ended up, of course, with terrible death tolls and mm. lots of lockdown um, because one of the lockdown fallacies, of course, is um, lockdowns driven by the virus. You'll have lockdown whether you want it or not, You'll have a uh, lockdown, whether it's formal policy or not, uh, depending on how much virus is there. That will always be the way. And, and, of course, you can use it strategically, as Australia did, to at least have very little virus in the community. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're in this position where we have a strategy that says, where many of our health officials say, look, it's okay to get infected. While this is happening 
in young people and, and so-called healthy people will protect the vulnerable. They want to protect. No one wants people to die or go to hospital. Everyone uh, is, is trying to stop that. Um, but it's proven to be impossible to protect the vulnerable. We had 20,000 people more than usual die in 2022 in Australia. These are astronomical figures. You know, pr- prior to the pandemic, if you said we'd had a thousand extra people die on our roads, for example, it'd be just, it'd be horrendous. We had 20,000 die. And that was the tip of the iceberg of uh, the impact, of course, of COVID. And we're, we're going at a similar rate again in in 2023. So this hybrid immunity idea is not working because we're all getting infected, but the viral evolution is outpacing us and our vaccination rates are flat and vaccines are getting less effective as the viral evolution goes goes fast as well. So unfortunately, we've locked ourselves in to a strategy as well as those other reasons um, that is a, um, you know, behind that was a kind of a pact. Uh, you know, when Chris referred earlier to COVID exceptionalism being over, there was a statement made by Prime Minister Albanese based on advice from the Chief Medical Officer in about September 2022. And you could tell from that moment on, all the, you know, even though the federal government went in opposition, had a very different view, uh, governments and and their oppositions in all the states and territories have particular views, all of a sudden, everybody was in alignment mm. and no one has stepped out of alignment. There was a pact made. I bet it wasn't formal written agreement. Um, and, and no one is willing to step outside of that pact. And behind that is, is this strategy as well as, you know, um, whatever's behind that that I think we've already we've already discussed and there might be other reasons behind it, but the, the functional reality is they've boxed themselves in now. It is very, very hard for anyone to break um, that, that pack amongst gang members as, as we've got. Um, and so we've got this extraordinary situation where no one talks about deaths, no one talks about long COVID. Um, uh, there's, you know, who knows what the limit is beyond which we would start to, to talk about it. Testing is largely withdrawn or made much more difficult. Um, to your point about access to public health information, why would you provide public health information when your strategy is to get infected? Mm. Your strategy is to promote widespread infection. That is our strategy. As difficult a concept as that is, uh, except, of course, in those who are immunocompromised, uh, if you know who they are, and uh, and the aged. Um, and so... We're in this this very difficult situation nationally, but also globally, and uh, and I'm not sure what it's going to take to to turn that around. So to sum up, the government is pursuing an actively Darwinian strategy based on very bad health advice that's leading to a massive number of unnecessary and avoidable deaths in Australia. Uh, it's it's a catastrophic situation. I think Brennan's raised the interesting point of what what it would take to change it. It's very changeable. Uh, it would take leadership. It would take just one state premier or one prime minister or one public health minister or a few more sensible uh, chief health officers, I'm thinking of people like Brett Sutton in Victoria, to step out, get together and start creating some media transaction costs for the grotesque lethal inaction by state and federal governments on COVID right now. Of course, if you're a, a political strategist trying to pull off such a move, what you what you want to do is create a new concept of you'd want to reconceptualize what's going on in order to create and launch a fresh approach that's not tied to past controversies. And there are some obvious routes to do that. I think the the push of lots of multidisciplinary experts around trying to do something about ventilation uh, is one route. You know, let's let's organize around clean air as an issue. But short of that, sadly, Mark, I think, um, you know, I, I keep thinking of the robo-debt example. What actually stopped that illegal program happening was a court case. That was the only way government was brought to account for shockingly, in some cases, lethally uh, bad policy. And I, I hate to think that it's going to take some kind of test case or class action uh, around COVID for government to wake up and actually do something about its appalling lethal posture right now. 
that maybe that's the case. And if that is the case, uh, of course, legal action takes years and years and years to happen. Um, you know, meantime, when's the next novel virus arriving? Is the national uh, set of quarantine facilities promised by uh, the Albanese Labor opposition? Is that in the works or is that just being completely abandoned? Um, we we really are in a serious situation and it's it's a leadership vacuum. Someone needs to step in and fix it. Uh, there were some hopes that the parliamentary long COVID inquiry uh, could have produced a, a cracking report that could have stimulated some action, but it was pretty bland and disappeared without trace. Um, in, in my dreams, some days I wake up and, and imagine that uh, the member, independent member for Ryan, uh, sorry, Kuyong, Monique Ryan, uh, was the new federal health minister. I think she'd be capable of really getting a grip on the situation and doing something to it and with it constructively. Uh, but under Mark Butler and um, under current leadership in the Albanese government, I just, I'm seeing a nothing burger. Uh, meanwhile, what's the death rate? It is phenomenally high, our third leading cause of death. And Mark, you're a member of the Canberra Press Gallery. What are the journos doing? Sweet FA, what gives? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. I've been critical of that myself. Um, a tangential member, let's just say, of the Canberra Press Gallery. Um, legacy member, so some, maybe you could put it like that. But were you surprised, Chris, just going, you know, to be very specific about this idea of a public health campaign, are you surprised about the absence of that? Because I don't see what the cost to government would be of a campaign which really is about community strengthening, about strengthening community bonds. It's, it can be seen as, as war challenges and these sorts of things are as a, a moment of community bonding and uh, uh, really kind of a patriotic thing to do. That, that The best thing you can do for your country is stay alert to, the, to this particular threat and to act in a way that is considerate of other people. I mean, so much of the debate was, going back to your point about cookers and extremists, so much of the debate was allowed to be framed by sort of nutters, basically, around things like whether masks, whether there was a mandate or not. The mandate discussion only really needed to happen because... I mean, when you think about it, putting on a mask is such a minimal and easy thing to do in, in circumstances, right? It doesn't curtail your freedoms in any significant way, especially when you balance it against the threat. And if it was if it was seized from the beginning in terms of uh, what a socially responsible person does who cares about the community they exist in and who cares about the unknown person they're dealing with across the counter when they're buying a coffee or whatever it might be, we could have steered around this whole kind of ludicrous, dim-witted binary about um, about you know whether there should be a mandate or not, which was the way a lot of people framed it. I don't have to wear a mask, therefore I'm not wearing a mask. I mean, it was sort of inane and childlike in its simplicity, and I, I, it felt to me like that part of this was a, a failure of government to put some money into um, in, into driving up this community awareness of the effectiveness of these sorts of things and the and the consideration that they represent one to another in our society. Completely agree, Mark. Absolutely, beautifully put. It is a a total mystery. Let's put this in historical con context. A previous federal Labor government managed to persuade gay men mid-sex to put on condoms before uh, completing their happy act, right? That was a phenomenal degree of difficulty and it was brilliantly done, really effective, a lot of co-design involved with the gay community uh, and as a result HIV AIDS uh, was really stemmed in Australia. So many people's lives were saved as a result of that excellent persuasive uh, public health campaign in, in conjunction with the gay community. Uh, and, and health centres around Australia. It was brilliant. So the degree of difficulty by comparison is trivial in this case. Now, again, with historical perspective, why has government been so limp, pathetic and, you know, inactive in this respect? Well, since the time of AIDS, uh, of course, there's been a massive sustained attack on the public sector. It's been defunded. It's been under-resourced. The APS has been hollowed out. Uh, People from across the political spectrum have been made fearful about doing anything particular in terms of public initiatives. I think government is really on the back foot in a way that it needs to kind of become conscious of and snap out of. And if you can't do it over an issue like this, what's it going to take? 
personally, when I heard Anthony Albanese relatively early on in, in a COVID-19 press conference say people need to take, quote, personal responsibility, I thought, wow, on public health, this Labor government has fully signed up for the libertarian let it rip, Dom Perrottet recommended course of action. Uh, is, is it possible to retrieve the situation under this government? Well, Mark, never give up. There's got to be a way. Uh, it might take a new health minister. It might take a court case. But at some time... Or a podcast. Hope, or a podcast, indeed. <laughs> it's, at some time, I really hope Anthony Albanese, Mark Butler and the rest of Cabinet do return to the really strong values of collective care uh, and intelligent application of objective research to bring the community together and reduce this unnecessary and outrageous current death rate, especially in nursing homes, but far from limited to it. Yeah. What's it going to take? I mean, I'm glad you're doing this podcast. It's a contribution. What, what else can we all do to snap the sleepwalkers uh, in the Albanese government out of their current public health failure? After all, Mark, just think, Mark, there have been more unnecessary deaths under Mark Butler's watch as health minister than under any federal health minister, at least since World War II. And that's a pretty disgraceful record. He ought to be ashamed. And it's not too late for him to do something about it. I encourage him to, to revamp policy in a sensible collective care direction. Brendan, um, Chris asked some pretty tough questions there. Um, they do need answers. Uh, one of the things that, it, that, that might be a spur to action could be the, the coming winter. Do you expect this to be um, a, you know, a, a, a worrying time uh, in terms of COVID, uh, as is broadly understood to be the case? And also, is there anything, as, as Chris asks, is there anything that can be done uh, over and above that to, or more specific than that public uh, relations or public health campaign uh, on things like the availability of antivirals? Uh, could, could changes be made there? Yeah, and, and just to, to complete um, or comment on, on, on Chris's point, you know, it's COVID specific here. We do, Australians love a mandate. You know, they're completely comfortable with a mandate. Just recently we've had them over vaping, for example, um, I was in Queensland not that long ago when um, Anastasia Palaget talked first in the same press conference about how we needed to be free and not have mask mandates and so on uh, for COVID. And the very next topic was introducing restrictions around e-bikes and <laughs> and sort of a, a, an acceptance that, that that was absolutely fine to have this scourge uh, regulated, which which of course is fine by me, um, but the the sort of paradox was, was seemed to be completely lost on anyone sitting there. So it's COVID specific. Um, look, there is there are key things that that can and should be done, and and um, you know the most important of them is this straight talking, this need to be frank, even if it is. Look, um, here's the scale of the problem. We also acknowledge, though, community fatigue and trauma. We don't have a license to do all of these things, but, you know, community members, you do need to know the extent of the issue and here's what you can do about it and we'll work with you as best we can given that context. You know, that would be vastly better uh, than, than a, a sort of almost misinformation campaign by ignorance, by ignoring it, I guess. Uh, you know, how can you not comment on the extraordinary death toll every week. Uh, it's been mentioned a couple of times, the third leading cause of death in Australia. That, they're the official COVID deaths. Of course, we know that COVID is driving, for example, a significant increase in cardiovascular deaths, which is the number one cause. So, you know, COVID's driving deaths in dementia and in cardiovascular disease, not just in uh, uh, in direct COVID-related deaths. So extraordinary impact we need the straight talking. We need to still avoid infection as best as possible. There are only the three things you can do about that that I mentioned earlier. Breathe clean air. Of course, if you can't breathe clean air, you need to wear a mask, a good mask, uh, which by that I mean a, a one that, that prevents aerosol transmission, so a 95-type mask, well-fitted mask. Um, you could get tested now. Yes, we testing is, is sort of palmed off as a state responsibility. It's almost, you know, impossible to get tested now, especially with a PCR-based test. Not impossible, but very hard. You've got to get a GP referral and so on. 
and and do and, you need that you know, to get the antivirals? Do you need the PCR? You test? do. Yeah. You can't you can't I mean, that's get ridiculous. the antivirals without a test. Yes, exactly. Mm. And you can't protect those around you if you don't know you're positive. Mm. Most of us would think, okay, I'm positive. I better not I'll try and not give it to my family or to those around me. I won't go to that dinner party, whatever. Most people would think like that. But if you don't know you're positive, um, you can't protect those around you. So t- testing is absolutely crucial and, and really. You know, there's no social license in improving ventilation. There's no social license needing in encouraging testing. You know, masks and vaccination, vaccinations, the other thing, seem to be very vexed. You know, that we could talk for hours about why they're so vexed. But vaccines are still crucially important. The reason we have 20,000 deaths a year and not 200,000 deaths a year is because of the power of those, the, the vaccines. They're incredibly effective even as the virus continues to evolve. And the third thing we need to do is to, we talked a bit at the beginning, Mark, about the miracle of how fast vaccines were delivered. And now we've gone into slow mode, research Mm. slow mode. You know, we we need tools that are next generation tools. So a vaccine you take once and protects you forever, like like measles. A vaccine that you, you know, perhaps spray up your nose rather than gets injected. Drugs, a much better, more effective range of drugs, drugs for long COVID. This is all going to happen, but it'll happen in five to 10 years if we go at the pace we're at rather than the you know Operation Warp Speed, the best thing President Trump ever did uh, by a mile. We need Warp Speed now because we're still in uh, a really desperate and needy situation given no one is willing to take any public health interventions effectively globally. And so these magic bullet pharmacological interventions we desperately need. So, uh, you know, ignoring it is at the heart of all of these problems and we'd just like to face it with some straight-talking honesty and we'd be halfway there. Thank you so much for your straight-talking honesty and to Professor Chris Wallace as well. This has been Democracy Sausage, a really terrific discussion, confronting discussion, one that I hope uh, some of our public policymakers um, uh, would uh, take the time to consider and perhaps if they want to put an alternative perspective, then um, my door's always open. We're happy to have continue this discussion with, with, uh, with Mark Butler or anyone else uh, in relation to where we are with this because it is a uh, an ongoing, as you've just heard, an ongoing uh, crisis really that is being treated as if it is uh, somehow normal and that has real-world implications, uh, lethal implications potentially for, for people, particularly going into this winter. This has been Democracy Sausage. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so uh, by email at democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Uh, and until next week, bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.